a lot of couples don't come to couples therapy until they're at the brink, until they're about ready to break up. And then, you know, they're coming in the door and the relationship is over. They just need uh, the formality behind it, a final place to end things. And for themselves to say, we've tried everything. We even tried couples therapy and that didn't work. Welcome to the Just Live Podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Stevens, and I'm inviting you in on my personal journey of learning and discovering how to live a life with more connection, joy, and purpose. I'll be sitting down with people from all walks of life to dive into topics including trauma, mental health, mindfulness, the nuances of love and relationships, and much more. I hope these conversations empower you to expand on what serves you, release what doesn't, and just live. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Live Podcast. I am your host, Olivia Stevens. And in today's episode, I sit down with sex and relationship therapist, Joanne Bagshaw. Joanne has over two decades of experience as a therapist. She is an award-winning professor of psychology and women's studies at Montgomery College. And she's also an author of the book, The Feminist Handbook, Practical Tools to Resist Sexism and Dismantle the Patriarchy. I really enjoyed this conversation with Joanne. I wish I had so much more time with her. There were so many aha moments. We dived into topics such as infidelity, desire discrepancy, how trauma can show up in your relationship. Um, I even unpacked some things I had gone through in the past in my relationships. And I really appreciate all the expertise and insight that she brings to this conversation. I think that this conversation will definitely have some people kind of evaluating, you know, how they've shown up in the past in relationships or how they're currently showing up. Um, At the very least, I hope that this conversation can help reduce the stigma that um, still seems to very much surround uh, the idea of couples therapy. And I hope that it can encourage those um, that are in relationship to explore it. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Feel free to share, like, comment. Um, All the support is very much appreciated. So as always, thank you so much and enjoy. Bye. Thank you for allowing me to be here today and taking time out of your day to sit down and talk with me. I have a lot of questions for you in regards to relationships and sex. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into uh, the industry? Sure. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking. Um, I've been a therapist for 25 years. And in the beginning of my career, I focused primarily in working with trauma survivors, uh, mainly rape and sexual assault survivors, um, intimate partner violence survivors, adults who are abused as children. And then over the course of my career, I did realize that my training in sex therapy was inadequate as it is for most therapists because we don't receive training in human sexuality. Mm -hmm. So um, about five-ish years ago, I decided to re-specialize as a sex therapist. Okay. How did you get into it like initially? Most of my clients are talking about sex. So, um, and without uh, a solid foundation in human sexuality, it was hard for me to support them in the ways that they needed. So I was really looking for a way to um, refocus my clinical practice. Um, As you can imagine, um, being a therapist for a long span of time, you know, our our interests change, our niches change. And so... 
Um, I was also looking to sort of re-specialize. It, it helps. Um, I'm sure this is true of many careers, but certainly with therapists, it does help us, um, you know, prevent burnout and stay fresh and learn new things and stay on top of the research, uh, what's current in our field and learn new skills and just be better therapists. Okay. I understand. <clears throat> so you started as a therapist focusing more on tr on trauma survivors. Correct. And then you realized, you know, as you're going throughout your career, you didn't have kind of the education or the foundation in sexuality to support the care and the, you know, guidance that you were giving? In terms of talking about sex. Okay. And which is interesting because um, in most psychotherapy training programs, we don't learn human sexuality. So it wasn't just as if, you know, me, Joanne Badger, didn't have enough training. Okay. It was like all of us, right? Wow. Um, it's really, uh, it's it's quite shameful, I think, in the, in the field because we're missing a whole aspect of someone's life. Right. And, um, and so, you know, I was searching for that. And certainly now that I'm certified as a sex therapist looking, um, you know, back through my career, I might have worked with people differently on specific topics, right? So um, I wish I had that training earlier, but I have it now. And I do hope that the field catches on. I do think that there are more and more people, certainly in our area, the uh, the area, um, there are more uh sex therapists, but I hope that industry-wide, that our graduate training programs begin to focus uh, on human sexuality. Okay. So I met you back in 2019. I had actually reached out to you for your professional help. I was in a relationship at the time. Um, we'd been together about three years and we would definitely were hitting some roadblocks. I'd say like communication was off. Um, our intimacy was off when we were having challenges in that aspect of our relationship. And um, I reached out to you in hopes of getting like some professional help to kind of help guide us to reconnect and understand how to communicate better. Um, unfortunately, the person I was seeing at the time wasn't open to getting some outside perspective and some professional help. I feel like I've noticed a trend in a positive direction that people are more open to therapy. There's not as much of a stigma around it, but it still seems like there is a large stigma and a lot of pushback against the couples therapy. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, first, uh, first of all, we have sort of this cultural narrative that if you meet your special person, then things are easy yeah. and you don't have to work on your relationships. And if it's the right person in the right relationship, it'll be, you know, beautiful romance for the rest of your life. And that is, quite frankly, bullshit. Yeah. Um, so uh, all relationships require work and effort. Um, and so I think that that's part of it. And then there's another part, which I think is really interesting, in that a lot of couples don't come to couples therapy until they're at the brink, until they're about ready to break up. And then, you know, they're coming in the door and the relationship is over. They just need uh, the formality behind it, a final place to end things. Um, and for themselves to say, we've tried everything. We even tried couples therapy and that didn't work. And so I think that those two things, when you put them together, um, you know, make a, a, a big shift in people's understanding about couples therapy. They say it doesn't work because they can name five people that went to couples therapy and it didn't work for. Right. But those are people that came at the end of the relationship when it was already over. Wow, okay. 
Yeah, for me, I mean, I've I've engaged in therapy a lot of my life, so it feels like a normal practice and mm-hmm. something that is helpful to me throughout my growth and, you know, evolving into adulthood <laughs> and beyond well into it. But so I'm always confused when people give pushback or feel like it's not for them. I feel like it's been such an instrumental part of my growth. Mm-hmm. And for instance, if an athlete, if an athlete wants to get better at their sport, they would hire a coach to, you know, help them right. improve performance and to give them tips, you know, to sharpen their skills. Yeah. I just don't understand why people wouldn't want to seek the help of a professional that can give outside perspective and really, you know, point out some things they may not realize because they're so in the thick of it. Yeah, I think there's probably some nuance in there. I I understand the trends since COVID and and now. So certainly during the pandemic, um, everybody was coming to therapy, right? So I went from a solo practice to a group practice just because of my wait list. Wow. Um, And now what the research is telling us, and there's, um, I can't remember the authors, but uh, just a recent New York Times article, that um, that trend for therapy uh, is is continuing, right? So people are still seeking um, psychotherapy at a higher rate than they maybe were before COVID, now kind of focus on anxiety and depression um, and how that shows up in different areas of their life. However, I do still think that there's a subgroup of population of people who are still highly resistant to therapy. And um, that group might be heterosexual men who are more likely to come to therapy if it's a couple's therapy, and particularly if it's sex therapy. Um, They're actually more likely to find the sex therapist and, uh, and, uh, you know, make the scheduling appointments. Um, You know, then there are other people who may have a really complicated um, deep trauma history that it's terrifying to come. It's scary. It's hard. Yeah. Um, and then there are cultural groups like African-Americans who might be highly resistant to coming um, because a lot of uh, psychotherapies are, you know, really geared towards, uh, you know, white uh, culture, right? So that's where our grand theories came from. So, you know, rightly so are their hesitance to to come in. So I think it, you know, those are just a couple of examples and in each little group, there's uh, some nuance. Um, but I do think that things have shifted. I think in general, um, and, and an area depends on that. So I am from Long Island, New York, where therapy is not as common, you know, maybe if it's insurance only, Will people be willing to go if they only pay a copay? But it's not like um, you know the DMV area. So I think that the trend is therapy is more common and popular, but there are some subgroups in there where who are resistant for their own unique reasons. Okay. So if that previous significant other had been open to meeting, <laughs> how would our sessions have started, or how would our work together have started? Okay. So just um, speaking generally about yeah. how I do couples work. And I have uh, very eclectic training in different kinds of therapy. Um, But I like with couples, I want to know about their histories, the history of the relationship, how they met, um, what drew them to each other, what they fell in love with, um, what happened along the way, like when did the trouble start and what was going on in the environment of the relationship at that time culturally, their familial environment, you know, whatever was going on around them. Um, And how did they handle those problems? Um, And and when I learned that, then I'm going to start to dive a little bit into their childhoods because 
you know, the idea of diving into your childhood in therapy isn't to blame your parents, but it's right. to, to identify and understand patterns. Okay. You know, we all have our touch points, our own particular wounds, the way that we see and interpret things when they go hard, right? Or they go wrong or they're hard. So one person might experience something as a rejection, another as an abandonment, you know, that comes from your childhood. And so helping to, um, you know, piece those together. So I want to understand like, why are you guys here? Yeah. Why are you coming now? What are the patterns at play? And that's my strength as a couples therapist is pointing out those patterns and then showing them in real time in the sessions how to change them. So we'll, we'll deconstruct a, a common argument. They don't have to often make up an argument. They're usually in the middle of one. <laughs> so we don't, you know, argue in couples therapy, but, you know, I'll have them start. And, um, you know, then I'm interrupting a lot and I'm saying, you know, I'm having them shift gears. Well, what if you did this? Or why are you standing that way? Or what's happening here? How is this impacting you? Let's change this whole dynamic. And then they have to practice. So, and I'm a firm believer in small, sustainable change over time. Each week or two weeks that I see them, we try something new that they implement at home and then they come back and we, you know, re rework it. What are some of the common arguments or uh, challenges that couples are bringing to you? Well, so it depends on who you're asking. If you ask couples, they say, we have trouble communicating. Everything else is great. Everything is great, except we don't have sex that often, right? Um, but I'm looking deeper. So when I, the challenges that I see, the people that are drawn to me, um, usually have something from childhood left over that they're playing out with each other and there's some transference going on. Mm. So transference is when you are transferring a historical pattern from an earlier relationship onto a current relationship. Oh, wow. And <laughs> it's very, very common. We wow. all have transference with people. Yeah. When teaching about uh, transference to students, you know, I, I talk about a student that might come in that reminds me of someone that I like very much and I automatically love the student. But what if it was a student that, you know, yeah. reminded me of someone that I didn't like very much and how that, you know, how that comes to play. So, you know, our awareness as, therap as therapists makes some... Um, a big role. Um, but many times in the couple dynamic, it's like at some point in the session, it's two young children who didn't get certain needs met mm -hmm. and they're fighting for those needs from a young place and helping to um, identify that, stop it, um, help the couple have empathy for each other. Like when you, when you learn where that wound comes from, what that need was that wasn't met. Mm. And you can have empathy for your partner and understand why they're reacting that way. Then, then you change and okay. then you feel closer. Can you give any specific examples of something that might've happened in childhood and how it shows up in a relationship? Like specifically, I know you said feeling like a need wasn't met or you felt abandoned. What specifically, what would that have looked like in childhood? And then how does it look in an adult relationship? Sure. So some, some common themes that I see that people, human experiences that people go through, a parent left or died. Another one was um, uh, working a lot or had other children or children with special needs and were distracted. And that from a child's perspective, they, um, they lost a parent. Maybe they lost two parents, but there, there was no one there when they needed them. Okay. Right. Um, and then let's say the other partner 
had a parent who was very smothering, who was um, there too much yeah. um, and maybe controlling and smothering. And you can see then with this, with the one partner where they felt abandoned um, might be, um, you know, seeking and, and approaching the partner who was smothered, like, like too much, like, where are you? Where are you? You didn't call me back. You didn't text me. And then the partner who was smothered. It's like, why can't you just leave me alone? Yeah. Like I'm busy. I told you I was busy, you know, and then, but really it is two young people where, you know, the person who is abandoned is like, I need you. I feel alone. I feel like a young child again. What's happening to me? Mm. And then the, the other person is like, why is everyone on me? Like, like stop controlling me. And, and they're both really arguing with parents. So then how do you work towards kind of, and those sound like opposite ends of the spectrum. So it's like you have to kind of find <laughs> yeah, a way Yeah, everybody's got to get in the middle. Um, and the middle is the, is the place of, of balance for couples is, you know, where do we find the middle ground? So going back to if they can tell those stories to each other about when that abandonment occurred and how it made them feel, what it feels like to be smothered and have your autonomy taken away. Um, if, they, if they can each hear that and feel empathy, and understand that the way they're approaching each other is triggering that in the other person. Mm. You can't change other people, right. right? You can only be solely responsible for how you respond in situations. So if you're coming in with, I know that, it, that a sensitive part for me it's, uh, in my history is feeling abandoned, that I have to take care of that younger self, so that I can go to my partner from an adult place and say, hey, I know you were busy today, but I sent you a text earlier and, and just checking in because you didn't respond. Like that's way different than you don't love me, you don't care, why right. you're paying attention to me. That's an adult place of checking in. Right. Um, and then the other partner, if they can <laughs> check in with themselves and say, I know that I'm sensitive to having my autonomy taken away and feeling controlled, mm. And so this person is just asking from an adult place, like they're just checking in. That's a normal, valid, healthy adult need. And I can monitor that in myself and then come back to the other and say, I'm sorry, I, you know, I saw your text. I meant to respond and then I got sidetracked. And here I'll be home in an hour, you know, something like that. Sounds and then it's so easy. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it is simple, but it's so, so hard because, um, because of the human experience and all of the complex emotions that come yeah. up. And, and I guess kind of, if you're always building on that pattern or that conditioning, it's going to take a lot to kind of re relearn how to act and show up in a different way. That's exactly right. And then that's how, what we work on in couples is like, okay, so what if you said this instead? And then we role play it. And then how does that land on the partner? Yeah. You know, and the partner's like, yeah, if he said that, I would have totally been fine. And we also work with body language. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot to just openly asking a question or like, where were you? You know, or leave me alone. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> how does that impact the other and how can we change? How can we become, uh, you can, you can feel empowered. You can be angry. You can be upset. Um, but, but be, uh, authentic and, 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 and owning your own feelings, taking responsibility for your own feelings. Yeah. You had mentioned a lot of times couples come and it's almost like it's too late. It's like their last resort or they've tried other things and they've kind of, I guess, maybe repressed things for so long or swept things under the rug. 
what do you, how do you maybe promote or encourage couples to come a lot sooner? I feel like there is this stigma that people feel like asking for help means something's like seriously wrong versus why don't we just be proactive and work together? Do you ever have couples that come in very new in the relationship that yes. maybe they, there isn't any significant challenges, but they just want to understand each other better? Yeah, you know, uh, it's funny. Um, again, when we talk about groups, usually the lesbian relationships are coming in saying, we just want to make our relationship really, really great. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Heterosexual couples don't do that as often. Yeah. yeah. And that's unfortunate because, you know, I think there's so many myths around what relationships are supposed to look like yeah. that is steeped in heteronormativity that um, straight couples can't like get out of that, you know, and, and even about how to, you know, what sex is, you know, like sex is only penetrative intercourse, like not really. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the, I think there's a lot that we can learn. It's the couples can, but in terms of reaching them, I think really, you know, podcasts like this, yeah. um, <laughs> education, I think probably our, our schools and chapters need to, to do some education campaigns for couples, um, that, you can really save your relationship if you start in the beginning. I want to add this though. Sometimes, yeah. um, sometimes when a relationship doesn't work out, that's okay. Yeah, it's okay. So I don't want to people to think that a, a relationship that doesn't work out well, means that it failed. Yeah, because we um, are impacted by the people that we're in relationship with. We grow and change in every. Uh, one of those experiences and someone else is around the corner. So you said people come in and say, we're not having enough sex. How do you unpack that? <laughs> so what does enough sex mean? Yeah. It's some of the same questions I asked earlier too, like when did this start? And so the, for my sex therapy couples who are coming in with desire discrepancy, I, I sort of have a spiel that I do at the beginning um, because uh, some psychoeducation um, really helps a lot in understanding the arc of relationships and um, uh, arousal desire over mm -hmm. time. So in the beginning, there's usually a lot of chemistry and sex seems easy and it seems spontaneous, mm -hmm. seems unplanned. Um, I argue that it's not spontaneous. Um, someone is on or has gotten birth control. Um, both part parties are grooming or buying right. outfits, right? There's preparation, yeah. um, but no one is actually <laughs> saying that out loud. Yeah, um, We are pretending it's spontaneous. So, but the chemicals are real. And those chemicals and that chemistry usually last two-ish years. Um, and then you're moving, you know, you're moving into a different kind of relationship. And now is the time that you actually have to start really talking about and planning and thinking about maintaining your sex life. But we don't know that in society because our movies and books tell us right. it should just be easy yeah. and your partner is going to throw you on the dining room table and have sex with you. And like, the partner is going to want to be thrown on the dining exactly. room table. <laughs> right. There's no, there's, uh, you know, no factors for bad backs or injuries, <laughs> um, kids and work and, and, you know, all of that. Right. So, um, you know, so, so at that point, you know, you, you do need to shift gears. And so, um, that is important to, to tell people. They're like a lot of people, a lot of couples will, that'll land for them. Okay. That that's actually, that's yeah. happened for us, you know, and then there's different types of desire. So we're taught, um, that desire, 
uh, goes in a linear pattern um, that's based on what's true for most men, which is that you feel um, you feel desire, then arousal, then climax, and then there's a resolution phase where you rest and then start the process all over again, depending on how old you are, right. is how long that um, that resting phase is. <laughs> right. um, so it's not very long, and you know, 18 year olds, but longer and older uh, men. Um, but that's not that's not the way it is for most women. Um, so for most women, women don't feel desire for sex until they feel aroused. Interesting. Yeah. And so if there's anything I wish everyone knew, it would be this information right here. So um, so this is why couples will come in and and, you know, often stereotypically uh, it's the husband or male partner will say, you know, she just never initiates. And she's like, I don't think about it. I'm not even, in, you know, I'm not so thinking about it. Sense. Yes, it does. So, but then I'll ask, okay, but once you say okay to sex and you start giving it a go, are you into it then? And then she's like, yeah, actually. And I'm like, well, that's because now you feel desire because you have, now you're aroused. And so there's nothing wrong with her. So this, right. to, you know, and often with just straight couples, they're coming in with, she has low desire. There's something wrong with her. And she's often identifying as yeah. a low desire partner. Maybe she's not, maybe she doesn't have low desire. She just has different desire. Okay. Right. And so that's why um, one of the hallmarks of sex therapy is this very unsexy sounding sex date. <laughs> um, because planning it is so important. Um, you know, when you're beyond that initial two years and you've started your lives together and you're working and you have kids, you have to plan sex. Otherwise it's not happening. Yeah. And this idea that we don't plan it is a fallacy because I already pointed out, we didn't have spontaneous sex during dating. We just didn't, we just pretended it was spontaneous. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so here you have to plan it and then let's, and you have to plan at a time that, that works for both parties. Most couples having sex before bed is not great, especially if you have young children. Um, you know, one or both are falling asleep by the time your head hits the pillow. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and you might have to plan for a babysitter. You might have to go to a hotel once every couple of weeks or once a month and just, you know, uh, spend the time there getting out of the house and then yeah. no one can bother you. Um, but plan the date and then your time um, in between the date is foreplay. You know, so foreplay is sexy text. It's commenting on each other. It's, you know, saying I'm looking forward to Thursday, you know, or whatever it is yeah. that is true for the for the couple. And then, you know, and that's building up her arousal so that by the time you're there, she feels desire, right? And so, and then it's, you know, this mutual uh, foreplay that's, that's occurring over time. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> so... Back to kind of the desire discrepancy that you mm -hmm. mentioned. Can you elaborate on that? I know that you said the desire doesn't come until the female's aroused, but is there still... Generally. Yeah. Is there still... Are men still desiring it more than women? Or is it vice versa or a little of both? Or is it is it that... Not that women aren't desiring it. They're just not desiring the sex that they're getting. Yes. I think it's all of those things, actually. <laughs> Great job. Um, you know, that's why it's complicated. And so, yeah. um, first of all, desire discrepancy is normal. It's typical. Yeah. Most people don't, you know, don't have the same level of desire for sex, most couples, you know, at the same time, always. 
So, you know, it, ta- it does take that understanding. And then if you can throw in uh, the differences in desire and arousal patterns, and then think about, you know, like I also want to ask a heterosexual couple, you know, is, is she having an orgasm? Because if she's not, yeah. what's motivating her to have sex? Right. And why isn't she? Yeah. So, you know, those are things to talk about. Um, and so it might be the sex that she's, you know, that she's getting. Maybe if it is very um, penetration focused and not a lot of foreplay, then she doesn't even have time to get aroused. Um, and so, you know, then some psycho ed goes in there and that, that's hard for, um, both men and women to hear, particularly men. Um, you know, a lot of couples come in, adult couples who are like, yeah, we know all about sex and don't know any of the things I just said and don't really want to admit it. Um, and that's okay. They don't have to, I tell, that's why I tell everybody. Yeah. So they don't have to admit it. and, And then they have this information. So it might be, um, just information. It might be the way that they're having sex. And then you throw in other human factors as one or both have trauma. How is that impacting? What is their stress levels like? What's their schedule like? You know, what are the other variables that are coming into play? And, and then the idea is to find some kind of compromise. Yeah. It's a lot of factors. It's a lot of factors. Yeah. And that's you know, the first few sessions is really doing some uh, investigative work, you know, asking good questions and helping them piece these things together, yeah. you know, from a perspective that's non-blaming. It's not usually one party's fault. It's right. a relationship dynamic. I know. I remember you said it felt like a lot of women that come in feel like something's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong with their desire. I know I felt that way. And the relationship that I was in when I was seeking your help, I felt like, what's wrong with me? I'm you know, 25, 26 years old, and I don't want to have sex with my partner, but mm-hmm. all of these things make so much sense. So, you it know, it adds up. It does. Yeah. It does add yeah. Up, so, and it's also, you know, the cultural narrative is this understanding that, that women don't want sex as much as men do, which is completely false. And, um, and men are not robots. And that's the other thing, um, that comes into play with sex therapy, especially if he's not, um, initiating sex, if he's having erectile dysfunction, you know, and she might take it personally. Yeah. You know, this idea like, um, in, in a patriarchal system that men are, um, ready for sex with anyone at any time, no matter what, right. That is not true. And that women don't want sex. And have to be sort of cajoled into it, right? right? And that's not true. Right. So, so I like to get that stuff out of the way and like, let's sit with the two individuals that are actually in the room and what's really going on. So shifting gears, I'm sure you have some couples come in that have dealt with infidelity, maybe? Absolutely. And like desire discrepancy, it's complicated. There's yeah. no one explanation for why someone was unfaithful or why this happened. Um, you know, in the relationship. So again, it's really, you want to, therapists are taking a good history and understanding um, what's the arc of this relationship? When did things go awry? What was going on in the person? Um, What, you know, what, what did the affair fulfill? And it's not necessarily about sex. It's not always about the partner. It could be them wanting to remind themselves that they're attractive, feeling that and that rush, that initial rush of chem- chemicals Those in the beginning of a relationship. Right. It could be repeating generational patterns. When you look at someone who's been unfaithful, 
was their father or mother unfaithful, mm. their grandparents. Oftentimes, it is something that happens uh, throughout the family line. And that's uh, actually really something interesting to look at. It's some, something that's been learned, something from previous generations is being worked through in an unconscious way, right? So that has to come to light. Um, you know, and, and you also do want to work with what's not going right in the relationship. And that doesn't mean blaming the betrayed partner, you know, um, but, but that doesn't mean that that person, you know, did everything right right in the relationship either. So you want to like, look at all of these things to figure out. It's a lot of nuance. It's a lot of nuance. Yeah. How do you help couples that have chosen to decide to continue to move forward? How do you kind of help them through the aftermath? Like what advice do you give? What, do you, what sort of things do you have them work on? Sure. And I actually think it's really important that couples know that you can. You can yeah. heal from, a, from an affair. You don't have to, yeah. but you can if you choose to. Um, and I think that there's a lot of also cultural messages about, about working through an affair. You know, like the person who stays is often judged pretty harshly, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. Um, but it depends, you know, obviously it depends a lot on the relationship and where you are, uh, you know, and in, in that consideration as to whether you're going to stay and what else is going on. Yeah. But in terms of how to work it through the person, the betrayer has to really, really repair. And that means they have to take 100% full responsibility for the pain they caused their partner in an authentic and deep way. They have to feel the hurt and express it, the hurt that they caused to someone else. This can take a couple (laughs) of sessions. It can take years. It really depends. Often they feel, it depends on their background, but they can be burdened with so much shame that's coming up from other previous trauma and that gets in the way and they can't you know, they can't get there yet. But until they're really able to own and deeply apologize, I don't mean just saying, I'm sorry, that's not an apology. And I'm not a big one on apologies. Like I mean, really, really repair. Like I did this because X, Y, and Z, I know that's why I did it. And, and I feel so, so horrible that I hurt you this deeply. I will never do this again. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make sure that this never happens again. You know, and, and, that, and the betrayed person needs to hear it and, and, and it needs to be authentic. Yeah. How do you guide the, guide the betrayed person from being able to accept that and heal and not hang it over their head? Like how, where Yeah, that's a balance that too, balance? because, what, you know, ongoing trust issues, yeah. right? And so... When I'm working with someone around trust, I'm not teaching people to trust other people. Trust means trusting yourself Mm. and your intuition. And so usually most people had an intuition and ignored it. And so they need to learn to really focus on that intuition. On all kinds of levels in relationships, we hurt each other. We say things, we do things that are selfish. We, you know, make snarky remarks. you know, so there's always uh, some kind of, um, you know, the continuum of, of, of harm that goes on in relationships. And, you know, you, so you have to, to know, like, like trusting your intuition in, in terms of like, 
where is this coming from? Can we heal from this? Can I forgive this person? Which never means saying it's okay that you did what you did. Yeah. But, um, but with infidelity, and we're talking about trust for the betrayed person, it really means them zeroing in on trusting their intuition. I like that you put it that way. Uh, do you think there's any early warning signs of somebody that may be unfaithful in a relationship or any like, I don't like the word red, the term red flag. Yeah. Like it's used so <laughs> much, some, but yeah. are there things or behaviors that somebody, you know, if you are getting this feeling, are there other things that might like confirm it? You know, the, the, the early sign is, is your intuition and it's telling you something's not adding up. The amount of time that they said they were gone and where they said they went didn't add up and it's repeating. Mm -hmm. um, the way that they are constantly turning their phone over or off or hiding it from me or talking outside on the phone, it's not, it's not right. It's, it, there's so many different ways that people right. can have an affair that, um, you know, I couldn't say it's these signs one. It's not like a BuzzFeed article, the five signs of maybe I'm sure there is. I might be quoted in one, but, <laughs> but in reality, um, it's it's not that simple because right. there are so many different ways that it could show up and and what infidelity actually means. Right. Varies amongst couples and even individuals in the couple. Yeah, I know. Like there could be an affair or it could be, you know, a one time instance. Or I know some people, I've heard the terms like emotional cheating versus physical cheating. Mm -hmm. um, are those things that are discussed in, you know, your sessions with couples as far as For sure. emotional? I don't know. That like to me that comes, what comes to mind is like maybe someone having some sort of relationship with like a coworker or, um, you know, texting but nothing physical ever happens, things like that. Um, do you think in your opinion, like, is the impact similar? Is it different, physical versus emotional? That depends on the person yeah. and their understanding for themselves of what infidelity is, like their definition and their history. Um, because sometimes people have a strong reaction to something that myself or someone else might think, okay, that was bad, but yeah. not really bad. I've heard worse. But that to me is a sign that there's something in their history going on, right? Not, it's not that they're overreacting, it's that their reaction is, isn't just about this affair, right? right? It's something else. Um, so I think what's important with couples is having them come to an understanding of what infidelity is. That's my next question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so because so non-monogamy, you know, it's right. consensual non-monogamy is not infidelity as long as both parties, parties are completely on board and not coerced in any way. So really they have to come up with a definition. It's not my definition. Yeah. You know, it's theirs. I'm glad you brought that up. Can you go into that a little bit further? Um, consensual non-monogamy. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I feel like I can trip on it when I say <laughs> exactly. it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, monogamy is not for everyone. Non-monogamy is not for everyone, right. but there's all kinds of ways that people can have relationships. And, you know, I, I like to encourage my clients to create the lives that, that they feel good about living. You know, you don't have to, to, to follow um, 
society's rules if they're not for you. And so if you um, want to open up your relationship, that's great. We can help you do that. But everything has to be on the table. And this thing about non-consensual, um, consensual non-monogamy, now I'm <laughs> tripping, um, is that people, um, couples uh, really work through and, and often write up contracts about what is wow. allowed and what isn't. So, you know, cheating on your partner and saying, well, we're, you know, this is being non-monogamous is not, yeah, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actual in-depth conversations about what's okay and what's not okay. And, you know, I don't, I, the, the couples that do really well with that, I don't see them. They're not coming to me. I'm seeing, <laughs> I'm seeing the couples who are struggling usually because one is not on board Got and it. feels like they have to. And, and the relationship is not in a good place. If your relationship is not in a good place, opening it up to a third party or a fourth party is not going to resolve yeah. your issues. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot so, of sense. So my job, like, let's get you into a good, good place. place. And then if you want to open your marriage, we can figure out how to do that. Yeah, it's just such an interesting concept to me because I know in my brain, I'm fighting against a lot of, you know, societal conditioning and like, this is what a relationship looks like. And, and if somebody, you know, goes outside those lines, they don't love you or they're unfaithful. And it's, it's, um, I'm, you know, learning more about it and learning to kind of expand, yeah. you know, my thoughts. And I'm sure a lot of couples struggle with that, with kind of, you know, understanding the concept, but then there's still being kind of like a roadblock, you know, with, um, how they see it and, and view it. Exactly. And so that, you know, these are really deep, hard conversations yeah. that couples, you know, need some support around having. Yeah. We had mentioned a little bit um, that past trauma um, would be a factor in some challenges, you know, in, within a relationship, within the intimacy within a relationship. Can you go into that a little bit deeper, you know, maybe some specific examples of, of what might show up and how it might affect a relationship? So there's all kinds of different ways that someone can have yeah. past trauma, but um, I'm thinking about couples where um, one or both are highly reactive. And they're highly reactive to each other. And any sense of dysregulation, like their nervous system, um, goes on high alert mm -hmm. and they're high, I want to say highly reactive, not overreactive. I feel like that's, um, kind of a judgment and a yeah. criticism. It's, it's more, you know, like their nervous system is always, you know, on guard. And then if they feel some separation, if they feel criticized, so they're triggered in some way. And triggered is a word that's overused, <laughs> like some of the other words, you know, we were talking about. Um, but it is, uh, it does have a real meaning for people yeah. with PTSD and that something has happened that is triggering some traumatic memories, um, whether conscious or unconscious. And so some, you know, they're being highly reactive. They're interpreting um, relationship challenges through a traumatic lens. And a traumatic lens is, is seeing things only by the catastrophic uh, results that are likely to happen mm. in your traumatized mind. Like yeah. that's the only, the only thing that's going to happen is something catastrophic. Um, where they're seeing things, um, 
through, you know, this lens of people are trying to hurt me. You're trying to, you know, to do things to me that, that make me feel bad when that may not be true, or maybe it is true, but they're so traumatized that they can't react in a healthy way to it. They're so dysregulated, but often with couples, they're just, they're both dysregulated, Yeah, you know, and they come in and they're kind of bouncing off the walls. And these are sometimes we, uh, we call them high conflict couples. The fights are ugly. You know, they're, they're old, traumatic, unhealed, raw wounds showing up in real time and they, they don't know how to stop it. Yeah. That's awful. <laughs> it's hard. It's painful. Yeah. You know, and those couples say they, they often need uh, individual therapy as well. How often do you suggest that? Um, that couples see individual. So, so couple, in couples therapy, we're working with the couple. So yeah. my client is the couple. And I'm helping, and we're we're working to change patterns. So if somebody, one or both uh, partners, has stuff from their old own history that is impacting our ability to change those patterns, mm. then I suggest individual. Yeah. Um. And some, you know, it's it's, it's not always easy to hear. Sometimes, uh, you know, the couple who is referred to individual feels blamed. And it's not really about them being at fault for what's happening in the relationship. It's just, this will help you in doing the work that we're doing here. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes they need to also just sort of like, let's take a break and you both get some individual therapy and then we'll come back. You know, it's all individualized, honestly, right. you know, based on what, what they're coming in with. Um, if there's couples that come in and they're working together, at what point or how is kind of a decision made if they decide, you know what, I think that we're going to have to end things or go our separate ways. How do you guide couples once they've kind of decided um, that's a route that yeah. they're choosing? Yeah. And it happens, um, you know, that's a part of them coming in. It's like we as couple therapists aren't in charge of what they do. Like their process may be what's best for them it's to separate or break up and having a safe space to do that and have these conversations with a third party present that that our presence often in these conversations makes each partner sort of um, on their best behavior, mm. saying things in the right way, hearing things in the right yeah. way. Um, you know, but sometimes we pick up that's the direction that they're going in. I myself might, um, uh, you know, ha see them individually. Um, for a session and just check in like, Hey, so, you know, what's going on? I, you know, I'm not sure, yeah. you know, if I feel like they can't say it with a partner, but I might check in with the partner, um, and say something like, I'm sensing your ambivalence about the relationship, about staying in the relationship, but I could be wrong. So I'd like to hear from you. Like, how do you feel about staying? Like give it that permission to talk about the stuff. They actually need that guidance. Yeah, I feel like it's, it probably feels really hard for a number of reasons. I mean, how much time you've invested in the relationship, whether or not there's children. I mean, you do yeah. love this person. Yeah. Um, it's probably hard to admit. It's absolutely hard to admit. They don't, you know, they, they may not want to stay together, but they don't want to end things. And that is really hard. And that transition of ending, and especially if they're married and own property and have children and businesses, it's so hard and it's so yeah. complicated. And I, you know, I understand that, um, you know, and at this, so that's, you know, that's what makes them 
come in, right? Yeah. And it, it hasn't happened a lot. I mean, in all my years, uh, you know, maybe five times or something. Oh, wow, okay. yes, not a lot. <laughs> Often they'll stop coming. They'll stop coming and rather than break. I don't know what happened. So, <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. So I don't know. Um, what are some traits or characteristics of couples that seem to be working and well together and are I don't like to use the word happy, but uh, are connected? Happy is good. Fulfilled. Mm -hmm. You know, what are some traits? or things yeah. that they do. The first thing they do is they make their relationship a priority. Oh my gosh, that's a good answer. Yeah, the relationship is the most important thing. And this is particularly hard for parents to understand and make their kids the most important thing. But you don't have a family if, if you don't make your relationship the most important thing. You're two separate families. So you have to prioritize the relationship. That's number one. I love that answer. Yeah. And then other things um, are having empathy for each other being sensitive to each other. I don't mean walking in eggshells. That's a yeah. completely different thing. But, you know, if you know that X, Y, and Z really upsets your partner, you know, maybe try to avoid that um, or talk it through. Um, and the other really important thing is a sense of humor. Mm. I can't tell you how, so many, how, how many fights could be diminished if someone would just crack an appropriate joke, joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just de-escalate. You're living with this person. You have to learn to de-escalate. I don't, and by cracking a joke, I yeah. don't mean um, bypassing with humor or making fun of someone. Yeah. I mean, it's appropriate. It's like, this is kind of funny. We need to laugh at this. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, Having so fun. <laughs> you have to have fun. Yeah. Like, when's the last time you guys had fun together? Go do something fun. Just go have fun. It's so important. Um, so, uh, you know, so putting the relationship first, having empathy for each other, validating each other's feelings and having fun. I think that's a great note to end on. Have fun, everybody. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure. I've learned a lot. I want to come back for more. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome.